Once again, we welcome you to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Very happy to welcome uh, Leslie Corbley back to the program. She is a Young Voices contributor as well as a part of the Libertas team. And uh, Leslie, I know I'm just kind of s- scratching the surface here. Tell us just a little bit about yourself and what you do. Sure. My name's Leslie Corbley. I'm the Privacy Policy Analyst at the Libertas Institute, which is a think tank based in Lehigh, Utah. And I really focus my uh, work on privacy and individual rights, how to maintain privacy in the 21st century and ensure that freedom is is passed down to our posterity for generations to come. It's funny. I've been having a lot of conversations with family and friends lately about privacy. Now, specifically, we've been talking about uh, the prospect of a digital currency and how essentially, you know, your financial privacy will go out the window, but boy, is it going to be convenient. You have recently written about uh, surveillance coming to a city near you and uh, pointing out that these surveillance cities can actually be a problem. What's the story behind this? Sure. So there are there's a trend, unfortunately, in some American cities of moving more towards more aggressive surveillance measures. So Houston this year just rolled out what's called, quote, one safe Houston, unquote. And uh, this is designed to fight crime. Uh, as we know, some cities are having a rise in in violent crime, which is unfortunate completely understandable that law enforcement would want to respond to that. However, the measures they're using to respond are what is troubling. So in the case of Houston, they're actually requiring businesses of a certain status or less stat- legal status, let's put it that way. Um, so, for instance, this would be think things like nightclubs, convenience stores, bars, uh, people, you know, businesses in that category are being required by law to have surveillance outside of their businesses. Now, it stands to reason that most of these businesses already have surveillance cameras out. But that being said, uh, this would require them to maintain surveillance cameras by law, essentially saying you cannot operate your business without um, the safety measure which is troubling. And then the second piece of the law would require businesses to store any footage from these cameras um, for at least 30 days. So they're not allowed to delete data uh, before the 30-day mark. And then the third and most troubling aspect is they are required to hand that footage over to law enforcement. Uh, So they're not allowed to, uh, I believe, within three days of the commission of a crime. So this is clearly uh, government wanting essentially to deputize uh, businesses into gathering evidence for them, which is troubling. And again, distinct from a situation where you would have a business with a surveillance camera who is handed a valid warrant uh, that says, hey, uh, we have a suspect. We're concerned that this individual committed a crime. Here is our relevant evidence, warrant signed by a judge. And then law enforcement is able to to view relevant footage that, of course, has been going on for for decades, as surveillance cameras outside of businesses are certainly not a new development. Uh, This is just a much more aggressive measure that would expedite these processes and, again, move away from a model where relevant evidence is reviewed and one where businesses are are required to collaborate closely with law enforcement. And that's a troubling, troubling development. So, Leslie, I have to ask, you know, um, on the one hand, I can see it making sense for a business to have, you know, to keep uh, surveillance footage and to to have it to protect themselves in the event that a crime takes place. Talk to me about uh, cities that uh, have have likewise followed Houston's lead, but say, you know, it's not good enough that we want just access to whatever footage you get. 
How many have asked for real-time footage of what's going on at their businesses? San Francisco is moving in that direction, which is troubling given that in 2019, they actually passed a ban on the use of facial recognition. Unfortunately, in the wake of COVID and uh, some other policy, what, what are arguably policy missteps in, in completely unrelated policy fields, uh, San Francisco is now facing a, a rise in violent crime. So crime across the board, the crime statistics, statistics in San Francisco are interesting. They don't show a rise across the board in crime, but in some very troubling violent crimes have risen. That would be things like homicides, shootings, and car theft. So things that, of course, instill a lot of fear in the public's consciousness given uh, the impact of that crime. So the mayor now is seeking to change the administrative code to allow to allow law enforcement to have much more easy access to um, private footage. And this would include, they, they do want real time, the ability to to watch and, and monitor these uh, this footage in real time. Wow. It just seems like once that toe is in the door, it, it kind of opens up a whole bunch of different possibilities, all of which seem to end with, and your privacy is going to be diminished. But hey, on the bright side, you know, the municipality is, is going to be very aware of what's going on. And uh, presumably that's going to translate to, you know, better protection. Yes, it's it's troubling. And San Diego had had a similar measure. You know, they had built a program as a way to, it, it, they installed, I believe, new LED cameras on about three 3,000 plus um, telephone poles throughout the city. So this surveillance was ongoing for years, sort of billed as a way to potentially ensure that traffic could flow smoother or you could develop apps. You you can, I, I believe they also build it as like a smart city, these, these new LED um, cameras that can gather sensory data that will make traffic flow easier and, and all these kind of claims. But then, of course, law enforcement was able to access this data, which wasn't quite as hyped to the public. Luckily, San Diego put an end to this, but it went on for several years before they ceased this program. Um, and it's unclear whether other, whether other cities will be following the lead. Um, there are There is a trend, again, with the rise of crime across the major cities of moving away from banning facial rec and sort of um, coming to embrace some of these more aggressive policing tactics. And, it's, and to be clear, it's it, the troubling nature of this. I think your listeners really need to understand this could, this is just the start of, of what these surveillance measures could look like. I mean, the, the amount of information out there now, uh, you know, starting with just video footage is, is one thing, uh, but that's certainly not the limit of the technological abilities right now. It's fascinating to me because, uh, you know, the, the technology has improved a great deal. And frankly, some some of the um, surveillance footage that we see every so often that shows up online of, OK, here was a crime in commission, you know, at uh, this store or that store. It's astonishing the quality. I can totally understand why law enforcement would want to get their hands on it. But like you, uh, the idea that, but we're going to deputize the businesses. I mean, haven't we seen a pretty good example of business and state kind of getting cozy in the last couple of years? And didn't that have some negative repercussions? Yes, uh, I think that this is just, again, something to look for because it's not going to come just from the law enforcement front. Uh, you see 
other government agencies wanting, particularly at the national level, wanting access to data that would otherwise uh, just be private consumer data that businesses themselves would hold and would not uh, release to government agents. There's a lot of power in the vast troves of, of consumer data that track and measure different um, human behaviors. And there's just more of this coming out with how algorithms are used right now. And the, it's not troubling to me in the sense that there's social problems that come from this that can be worked out in the marketplace. The problem is when this information is very easy to flow to government agents or when government agents can commandeer this information from private actors. That's where I think you have to draw a line where there's private use of data, even if it's, you know, say an algorithm that's that's kind of disturbing or has perverse incentives or people don't like the information being collected. There's there's private ways to deal with that. Uh, but there needs to be a clear delineation between the private enterprise and public use. And right now, it's just very easy to transform uh, data that was gathered in the private sphere from private use to public use. And that's where I think policymakers need to to be really engaging on solutions, because that's a troubling relationship. Yeah, I we've got about one minute left here. But Leslie, it's the idea that, you know, a business would want to have top-notch surveillance uh, footage as part of, you know, their their overall plan of protecting their employees and protecting their customers. That sounds great. But uh, when, if, if the city's mandating, well, you got to have this, does the city subsidize that? Or is that some, just a cost they're expected to bear? Yes, I think that th- these are just some of the questions that need to be discussed. And frankly, I find it shocking that we have in this country uh, quite a few commentators, uh, who want to discuss fascism without talking about some of these issues, uh, which is where modern, frankly, where modern day fascism would would have an outlet. Uh, you know, it's very easy to to see the surveillance methods used in China and the command and control uh, environment they have out there and to understand that that would be the wave of the future, so to speak, as far as um, governing from a heavy handed, centrally planned um, arrangement. And so, again, this this public use and private use, those have to be separate. There needs to be a line delineating that, and things in the private sphere can work work their have a way of working themselves out. Right? Obviously, I'm a believer in capitalism and creative destruction and all of that, but you don't want the state to be um, able to easily access that which is coming from the private sphere. Leslie, this is why I'm glad you're on the job. Again, we're talking with Leslie Corbley. She's a privacy policy analyst with Libertas Institute as well as a Young Voices contributor. Where can people find you on social media? Sure. Right now, it's very easy to find me on Twitter, at Corbley Leslie. So that's just at my last name, then first name, nothing in between. I'm also on LinkedIn, and uh, I'll be expanding my presence as well. Uh, I also have a a personal website, lesliecorbley.com. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. We are happy to welcome a new voice to the program. Aaron Broadus joins us from Kentucky. Aaron, tell us just a little bit about yourself as a Young Voices contributor, as well as uh, what else you do in your life. Sure, absolutely. Um, well, I'm here in Louisville, Kentucky. I moved here actually from Washington, D.C. Um, and in the three years that I've been here, I have seen crime increase on a scale that I've never seen before. I grew up, went to elementary, middle, and high school and college here, and everything was pretty wholesome. Um, So in the three years that I've been back, I've seen an uptick in crime and not just 
violent crime, but homicides um, as well, which has really kind of spearheaded my interest in criminal justice reform um, on this front. So I hear talk about bail reform, and I I have an idea in my head what that means, but I'd like to get to, I'd like to get kind of a baseline definition from you. When we talk about bail reform, more often than not, when people use that term, what exactly are they referring to? So bail reform is a really important reform project. And what people are almost certainly referring to is poor people that were incarcerated for low level offenses and remain in jail for long periods of time because they can't afford the $500 or $300 bail. Whereas people that committed much more violent offenses are released because they can't afford it. Um, that bail reform in and of itself is a very noble um, pursuit. And in no way would I uh, turn back on that. Here in Louisville, our problem is, is, is exactly that, but it's twofold. Um, our jail is mostly comprised of people that cannot afford Bail. So it's 30% misdemeanors, 30% low-level criminal offenders. Um, and because it's so overcrowded, we don't have room for people that are egregiously violent. Um, and when I say that, I, 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 I'm not being extreme. Um, in my article, there's a case of a three-year-old named Trinity Randolph, and she was shot in the face intentionally um, while playing in her uh, little play box and then her father was shot and the person who shot them was released um on three hundred thousand dollars bail wow um, three hundred thousand dollars is is prohibitively expensive for a lot of us here in kentucky but he had um connections to the rap community and they they pulled together and released him he has since gone on to commit more crimes and to my knowledge he is still um out there and so bail reform needs to encompass both sides so that means incarcerating people that are a threat to the community and also those that are a flight risk Um, that also means making sure that people that just can't pay are released because that's the way that the criminal justice system should work Um, doing that make sure that the people that need to stay there have the resources that they need to be taken care of in a way that's meaningful wow yeah, I can I can see why this could be a, a complicated subject. Now, I have some friends who are police officers, and one of them in particular gave me this explanation once. I want to bounce this off you. He said, when it comes to arresting somebody, he likes to, to kind of run a little bit of a, a test on himself. He'll ask himself, is the world going to be a safer place because I put this person in handcuffs and take him to jail tonight? It, will, will the world be a better place? And if the answer isn't clearly yes then oftentimes, you know, he, he won't arrest them. Now, of course, you know, the violent crime, that makes it a whole lot easier. But I like the amount of restraint that he's showing. And I think that, uh, you know, it shows, you know, where you can correct a problem without uh, resorting to uh, creating a criminal record. Maybe that's the better way to do it. But um, I, I'm seeing more and more municipalities that, that are actually, it seems like even the violent crimes, they're like, ah, yeah, 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 it's not a real problem. Um, Illinois, for instance, the number of crimes that they're not going to even uh, use use bail on sounds like uh, sounds like the criminals just got handed a big old favor. They really well. First of all, I'd like to say that your friend sounds like a really great cop. Um, that is that's the type of police work that we are looking for and we strive for, and hopefully one day we can um, 
pay them more to be more like that. Uh, but yeah, especially with COVID um, here in Kentucky and all throughout the nation, we just released a bunch of people that were in our jails and prison systems. And then we saw a crime, you know, impact and we saw crime spikes everywhere. And you can't blame that all on COVID or just the releasing of these people, but there has to be some sort of responsibility taken. Um, if someone has hurt someone else, that is the reason that we built a criminal justice system. Um, and I think that at the end of the day, we have to fall back on that and remember that as the core reason why this system exists. And we've kind of we've gotten a little bit far away. If you look to New York, they don't even take um, the the likelihood that that person will be a public, you know, enemy or cause some sort of harm. They don't look at that when they're deciding on bail. And that's crazy. Um, Washington, D.C. only looks at that, that and if they're a flight risk. And that is actually the model that we should be we should be going for. Um, when you create a system in that way, you ensure that the resources that you have are used to incapacitate the people that need to be incapacitated. And those people are the people that are hurting other people. So if you hurt someone, and that is the reason that you are in jail, you should probably stay in jail until it's your day in court. It's it's not that difficult of a concept. It's just kind of gotten convoluted, I think, in the politics of today. So who resists this? I mean, it's you can always tell a little something about an issue by you know, who are on the op opposite sides. Who resists the idea of bail reform? Um, well, the idea of bail reform, meaning looking at the likelihood that someone will reoffend in a violent way, you can look to states like New York. And the reason behind it is because um, there is a thought that overly policed communities are overly policed. Um, there's also evidence that indicates that those communities are overly policed because there's more crime there. Um, so that that issue warrants pause. But at the end of the day, if you shot someone, I don't think that we need to have a debate about whether or not you should be held in jail until your day in court. Yeah, this in fact, uh, it wasn't it just recently in um, was it New York where a, a shop owner defended himself against someone who was, you know, in the in the process of, I think, either robbing or beating him or something, ended up uh, stabbing his assailant to death. And wow. You know, the, the prosecutor sure went after that shop owner, but and they, it's, you know, high bail and everything. California also, there was someone who was arrested for um, millions of, of lethal doses of fentanyl, and, um, and he was released on bail. So it's like, if you are a threat to the community, like, I really truly think that the conversation ends there. Or if you're a flight risk, if you've missed your court date in the past, those things are important. And that is what the bail system is for. Um, I would argue tooth and nail to get rid of it altogether and be like Washington, D.C. But if we can't do that, I think that incremental steps in the right direction is the way to go. Okay. Where would you direct people to get better informed on this subject? Um, well, uh, the Manhattan Institute is really great um, because they're in Manhattan. They deal a lot with Rikers um, and they have direct data coming straight from Rikers about the types of people that are in there, like the whole population that's in Rikers, what to do with with them and like what the bail system and the reforms that happen there, what, how it's really um, impacting the state of New York. I think because Rikers is such a big prison and such a national topic that that would be a good place to start. 
Okay. So again, uh, we uh, we are having this conversation with Aaron Broadus. Aaron is a contributor for Young Voices, as well as you are a number of other hats. Tell us where people can follow your work and specifically where they can find you on social media. Sure. So I'm uh, Aaron Broadus. Uh, you can find me on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Aaron Joyton on Twitter. Um, and then if you go to the Pegasus Institute, I've got plenty of blogs up there, too. Okay. And you've, uh, you've been published in a number of different publications. Aaron, I'll be, uh, I'll be keeping a very close eye on, on your work here, especially this uh, regarding uh, bail reform. Thanks, thanks for all the hard work and research that you've been putting into this. Thank you. Thank you for your time. All right. Again, we've been talking with Aaron Broadus. We will take a very quick break. We'll be back with more on Moving Forward with Young Voices. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Very happy to welcome another new voice to the program this week. We have Ethan Brown joining us. Ethan, tell us just a little bit about yourself, who you are, and uh, what you do. Well, thank you for having me, Brian. I am Ethan Brown. I am uh, about a year out from graduating Boston University with a dual degree in environmental analysis and policy in film and television. I host a comedy climate podcast called The Sweaty Penguin, which is presented <laughs> by PBS's National Climate Initiative, Peril and Promise. And I am a new member of Young Voices and really excited to be here. Well, we've got a timely topic to discuss, you and I, and uh, that is the uh, newly signed Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. Now, I'm kind of a cynic, so I'll just tell you right up front. Anytime a politician proposes a particular piece of policy, I almost have this reflexive way of looking at it like, okay, the Orwellian interpretation is this thing's going to do exactly the opposite of what it says. But in particular... I know there was a lot of things that were packed into this IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act. I didn't realize that there was a promise in there to reduce carbon emissions by roughly 40% by 2030. Tell us about that. Yeah, so this was kind of the headline number. If you look at the one-pager that the Senate released, they say it's going to cut carbon emissions by 40% by 2030. And is that true? Kind of. Um, Basically, it's projected to lower emissions by 40% from 2005 levels, and it is now 2022. And that's fine, except for the fact that we've already reduced emissions by about 16% since 2005, um, based on just current projections prior to this act coming out. Emissions would have continued to drop by another 10 15%. So I think that it's Maybe if we look at a graph, it would be correct, but I feel like that's a little misleading, and that was where I wanted to write an op-ed and try to clarify some things. I hadn't realized that uh, the emissions levels had been steadily going down since since 2005, so I'm feeling kind of encouraged. Is, do I have any reason to feel encouraged, or is that is that wishful thinking? Absolutely, and I think this is one of the biggest misconceptions that I'm always trying to break when it comes to climate change. There's so much doom out there, and 
are we moving fast enough to meet international climate targets? No, but we are moving. Uh, from 2005 to 2019, like I said, U.S. emissions have come down 16%. Uh, coal consumption from electricity has come down by 58%. And if we look globally, at the time the Paris Agreement was signed in 2015, the world was on track to warm by 4 degrees Celsius. Today, that number is down to 3 degrees Celsius. So again, this is progress. It's not necessarily as fast as we would need for a lot of the goals that we might have, but it's something and it's worth being excited about and building on those solutions to move forward. Ethan, you point out in your article, the New York Times actually referred to the uh, Inflation Reduction Act as the nation's first major, major climate law. And that's not exactly the case, is it? No, and I think that it's a little discouraging to hear that because I'm not going to say other bills have been quite as ambitious. I think that the Inflation Reduction Act was the largest investment in history for whatever that's worth. But we've actually had a lot of bipartisan successes in the environment uh, going back recently. We've had things like the Infrastructure Act last year, the BEST Act. Uh, there was stuff with nuclear energy. There was the Great American Outdoors Act in 2020. Um, but what really gets me is if we go back to the 1970s when we had a Democratic Congress, Republican Presidents Nixon and Ford, we passed the Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act, Endangered Species Act, National Environmental Protection Act, established the Environmental Protection Agency, and a whole long list of other things. And this was a bipartisan effort. Sure, we didn't know about climate change then, but these are some of the bedrock environmental laws in this country that have actually been used to help with climate change in a number of ways. So I think that seeing where there is this common ground and seeing where we can build on it is certainly very exciting. And I wouldn't want this new act to take away from that. That's it's so interesting. You point out that there were those other acts which weren't even necessarily uh, portrayed as as climate related, but nonetheless addressed, you know, certain climate issues. What's what are some of the positive things that are happening in terms of clean energy? Because I, I get some mixed feelings. High gas prices. That's not such a positive thing. But I understand that, you know, the move toward clean energy may, you know, this may prompt some people to consider buying an electric car and so forth. When it comes to clean energy, are we seeing some some gains that would make this worthwhile? Absolutely. And this is where that 16% drop largely comes from. The cost in the last decade of uh, photovoltaic solar dropped by 85%, um, onshore wind by 55%, and batteries for electric vehicles by 85%. I hope I got those numbers right. Um, and that's so exciting when we take that, when we think about energy efficiency, which saves everyone money as well as uh, saves on energy and carbon emissions. These are really exciting developments. This is why I get so excited to work on climate change, because uh, at one time it might have been this balancing act between the environment and economy, but that's just not true today. Now, a lot of these cleaner energy alternatives are cheaper than a lot of the fossil fuels. So certainly in a year where we're seeing these ridiculous oil prices and we're having to contend with a lot of energy vulnerability in part due to some of the heat waves and disasters that climate change is causing. Yeah, I'm definitely excited about clean energy. Is, is, this, uh, is this benefiting politicians? Sorry, but I have to ask, do, do politicians, 
receive some kind of benefit to, in relation to like the Inflation Reduction Act and its its climate uh, uh, portions or some of these other acts that that you have mentioned? What what do they stand to gain by by implementing this? I think whenever there's a political success, politicians are going to stand again, and I think rightfully so. Where I was concerned is if we get to 2030 and we see, oh, there was a 40% reduction in carbon emissions from 2005 levels, and you start to see politicians get up in debates and say, yeah, the Inflation Reduction Act, we did it. That was, that was me. Because it is part of it, but it's not all of it. And if we single this out as the one climate solution, I think that just leaves so much less to be excited about and hopeful about. There are certainly a number of people in the country who just didn't like the Inflation Reduction Act, be it climate reasons or some of the many other provisions that I think may have been a little more controversial. Um, And then there are people who might like the Inflation Reduction Act, but still might not realize that there's a lot of other things going on to be excited about. So certainly my concern and why I decided to ultimately write this piece was I wanted to be sure people knew this is the role the Inflation Reduction Act could play if it is successful, but it's not doing 40% on its own. No, I think that that context is really important. And, and you know, at, at some level, I want to be able to trust people who are in power to do the right thing. But uh, sometimes it's hard because they'll, they'll bring up something like the Inflation Reduction Act and pack it so full of things that may or may not strictly be related to it that, you know, it's, it's really questionable. Are they doing this to accomplish something good or is this just, you know, pork for special interests? And I'm sorry to lump everybody together in that, but it's the politicians that do this. You know, it's, it's not necessarily the lobbyists that are like, now don't forget us, put us in the bill. It's been really frustrating to me to see a lot of these omnibus bills becoming so, so popular. Um, Sure, some of these landmark legislations can be exciting, but I think when we try to pack all of these different priorities into one bill, you inevitably start to lose support. And there are going to be people who say, I don't agree with this tax provision, or I don't agree with this healthcare provision. And they might love all the climate stuff, but basically what you're doing is just losing votes and losing votes. And then this bill passed the Senate 51 to 50, but okay. (laughs) I mean, I would love to see bills passing with 80 votes or 90 votes. I know that might be weird to say in this day and age, but it has happened in history before. So what I like to look at with climate change is where is their common ground? Even if it's on just little things, can we just get a quick bill done, pass it, and then move to the next thing? I'm not a government expert in terms of the procedural aspect, but I certainly feel just as a citizen that that might be a little more appealing than doing these thousand page bills and just barely getting enough support on them. Now, you you make an excellent point. Again, we're talking with Ethan Brown. He is a contributor for Young Voices and also attending Boston University. Where can people find you on social media, Ethan, and where can they access your writing? Yeah, so you can find me on Twitter at EthanBrown5151. You can find the Sweaty Penguin podcast on anywhere you get your podcasts, as well as the sweatypenguin.com or pbs.org slash peril and promise. And uh, you can see me on Young Voices. I'm doing op-eds, and I'm really excited to be a part of the program. The Sweaty Penguin. And that, that one sticks. That's a, that's a good, catchy name. 
Ethan, that was the goal. Thanks, thanks so much for visiting with me. I hope we get a chance to talk again soon. Thanks for having me, Brian. Definitely. Welcome back. This is our fourth and final segment of Moving Forward with Young Voices. Very happy to welcome Ben Coates to the program. He's a Young Voices contributor. And Ben, would you mind telling us just a little bit about yourself, who you are, and what you do? Uh, well, I don't want your listeners to switch off, so I'll, I'll, be, I'll, be, I'll be very brief. Uh, I studied politics at university. Uh, I've also uh, studied law for a bit. Uh, and at the moment, I sort of taken a year out uh, and have been writing with the uh, Young Voices program uh, as a sort of a, a side hustle, as it were. Okay. Well, I, I'm grateful to have your voice as, as part of their cadre. And I'm looking at an article that you've written for commentcentral.co.uk about uh, the British Navy is woefully underprepared for a Chinese invasion of Taiwan. Now, there's a lot of stuff going on in the world right now, most of which concerns me. But that uh, that Chinese-Taiwan question, that's a big one, because it, it involves a lot of the other nations around the world. Talk to me about uh, where the concern is uh, with, with Taiwan and its intentions toward, uh, I'm sorry, with China and its intentions toward Taiwan, and then help us understand what to, what is Britain's commitment to Taiwan? Uh, well, obviously, for, for decades, um, well, since more or less the end of the uh, Chinese Civil War uh, back in the uh, 40s, um, sort of communist China has had the attitude that Taiwan is very much uh, part of China. Uh, and of course, Taiwan is part of China in a sense. Um, you know, most of them have a common uh, descendants, uh, common elements of culture, uh, you know, the idea that it is completely uh, different uh, is, of course, not right. Uh, but the Taiwanese have, for decades, uh, much rather live under their uh, current political system, uh, under sort of uh, a sovereignty of sorts. Uh, and on and off, this has been OK with the communist Chinese. Um, they've often had internal uh, issues, um, such as, well, not to be glib, but, you know, up to and including lack of food. Uh, but now, obviously, as the Chinese economy has developed massively um, and as uh, under uh, Xi, uh, the sort of the tone of, of politics uh, in the country, which, of course, is set very strongly by the actions of the party, naturally, it's not a democracy, um, has become substantially more hostile and nationalist, uh, moving away from the sort of detente that marked uh, sort of the 2000s and even the early 2010s. Um, so Taiwan is therefore under a lot more threat, I think, than it was. You've had, obviously, the Pelosi visit, uh, whether that was wise or unwise. Uh, the, the Chinese reaction uh, has been very clear, uh, and you saw military drills which were uh, far in excess of the scope of uh, ones which had happened previously. Uh, you've had, obviously, all sorts of rhetoric, uh, and indeed, the party's white paper in August, which made very clear that reunification is more or less uh, communist China's main foreign policy aim. 
um, and that uh, they want that to be peaceful, uh, which, which I don't think necessarily is um, sort of uh, untrue. They know that a war would be very costly, um, but that they will not rule out reunification by force. So that is obviously putting Taiwan uh, in a very tricky uh, position indeed. Um, so, uh, and, and really, uh, the second part of that question uh, was that how that sort of relates to Britain and the Royal Navy. Mm-hmm. Well, my piece is not really arguing that we should intervene uh, in a in a war uh, in Taiwan. I'm I'm sort of undecided on that. Actually, there are obviously big arguments for and against, but it's eminently possible that we would get involved. There has been uh, absent Vietnam, a long, long history uh, of uh, sort of Anglo-American military uh, sort of cooperation. Um, And obviously in the global war of terror, uh, we were everywhere you were. Um, And, you know, there have been numerous statements. Our our new prime minister, uh, Liz Truss, has said that Taiwan must be defended. Um, and British and American forces uh, are currently training to fight in the Pacific doing exactly this. So there is a, a clear and present uh, danger of us getting involved. Um, you can argue the wisdom of that, but I don't think you can argue uh, that that isn't you know, possible. Um, and the trouble is we are entirely uh, ill-equipped for it. Uh, whatever the dangers of doing it, the American uh, Navy is very well prepared. Um, and whilst obviously uh, no nation on earth has the uh, the same sort of budget, uh, we do have the money to be better prepared. It's just that the wrong decisions have been made. So, what are the what are the major areas uh, of lack of preparation, or what are the what are the places that uh, that Britain and perhaps others, you know, would would need to shore up their their military? Well, I suppose. Um, at least in in the sort of first part, I'd say that there are sort of two uh, sort of subsections, as it were. Uh, The first, you could use the phrase, and I think this phrase came about in the Cold War about something completely different, is the missile gap. Um, Now, there's a a, a recent uh, report, I think, uh, by a parliamentary committee, which described the Royal Navy as a porcupine, uh, which is to say that it's quite capable of defending itself, uh, you know, our, our measures against enemy aircraft, and enemy submarines are, you know, are very good, um, relatively speaking. Uh, but our ability to attack is actually very poor. Our submarines can sink ships. But other than that, despite spending billions of pounds on, you know, stealth aircraft and, and, and large ships and, and all the rest, it's extremely limited. Um, and that really is down to the fact that both our, uh, our surface ships and our F-35s, we, we operate the same stealth fighter that uh, you guys do, don't actually have any long-range missiles which could attack uh, ships or, uh, you know, or, or buildings. Um, and that effectively turns uh, the F-35, our F-35s, into the world's most expensive dive bombers. Um, they have laser-guided bombs, which are all very well and good uh, in certain aspects, particularly, let's say, you know, you're, you're attacking someone like ISIS and you want a low collateral damage and a relatively cheap uh, weapon to take out, you know, buildings and that sort of thing. Uh, but the fact is that stealth aircraft are not fully invisible. I, I believe 
uh, a recent president of yours, President Trump, um, made comments to the effect that he thought at some point they might actually be invisible. Um, of course, they're not. Uh, it, they're just uh, a lot harder to see on radar. Um, but that effect diminishes the closer you are. Um, so to the layman, if you think about it, uh, it's just as if your stealth aircraft are a lot further away than a conventional aircraft. The moment you have to get, though, within the distance of dropping a bomb, which is maybe a dozen miles, you, you I think, can see, I think anyone can, can see the, the, the point that's coming. Yes, you have a certain advantage with stealth, but you're really putting extremely expensive airframes and lives at risk if you don't fit long-range weapons. It is not a panacea. It's not a cure-all. It does not make you invulnerable. Um, and so both our ships and our aircraft lack long-range missiles, um, which just puts them not only in, in harm's way, because also uh, the carriers have to be a lot closer because the planes can't fire at a long distance. Um, but it puts the aircraft in danger too. Um, and that is just uh, absolutely unnecessary. Uh, these weapons exist. Uh, there's a Norwegian missile, which we could fit to both our ships and our aircraft that have already been tested. You know, uh, It would simply be an off-the-shelf purchase. And the, the fact that we haven't done so uh, really has uh, led to a state of affairs in which we spent sort of 80% of the money, 90% of the money, and got a quarter of the capability. It's quite astonishing. I have to ask you this, Ben, is there any scenario uh, moving forward that doesn't uh, result in the forceful reunification of China and Taiwan? Well, I think that we've seen, uh, and the Chinese, of course, will be watching as they watched uh, when they saw the wholesale uh, defeat of Saddam. Um, they've watched what are actually not at all advanced uh, weapons that the West have given. This is Cold War stuff, actually. There's nothing secret we've given them. Um, take apart the forces uh, of a dictatorship with no professionalism, low morale, low training. They'll be looking at, at that. And obviously, um, the scenarios are different. The context is very different. But I think a big hope for avoiding that attempt at forceful reunification is if we ensure that Ukraine wins, as they do appear to be doing, I think the Chinese will take a look and wonder whether, at least for the next couple of decades, it may not be wise to get involved in a, in a war, whether direct or proxy with the West. Okay, we are unfortunately up against the clock. We are talking with Benjamin Coates. Ben, where can people follow you on social media? Where can they follow your work? Ha, that's a good question. Uh, I'm far too wise at the moment to have any public social media. Um, so. Uh, nothing with articles. Um, as I publish more articles and I have more to put on, uh, I'm, I may well start something. But for the moment, I'm off the grid, so to speak. 